Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. Ephesians chapter 4. Glad that uh, those of you who are visiting with us today, glad that you could be here. Hope that you see that God is worshipped. That's our desire and our goal each time we meet. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul has taught us through this study to act our age spiritually, to be who we are. The old person has been done away with, and now we have become a new person in Christ. And so his point here in the text that follows is to act like one. Since you have laid aside your old self and have put on the new self, start acting like one. God has brought you over to a new team. Okay, you don't you don't play like you used to play on that team. That team played dirty, it played against the rules. Now you're on God's team and you play a certain way. And so start playing that way. You you are part of a new family. You you aren't a part of that old family that maybe some circumstances and some activities went on in that family, but now you're a part of God's family if you've been brought to Christ, if you have trusted in Christ as the only means of your right standing before God. You see, you are not what you used to be. And now that we're on God's team, now that we are part of God's family, what does it mean? What does that look like? We have been set apart for God's purposes. That's what happens at salvation. He takes us and He says, now you're in this position. Now here's what it looks like. And we learned this for the rest of our lives as Christians, start living what God has purposed you to live like. If God has set you apart to be holy, and if you're a Christian, He has, then be holy. If God has set you apart to speak wholesome words and to work hard and so on, we're going to learn today, then do those things. We've laid aside our old self. That's not how we are anymore. Now we have a new self. Notice the passage begins... Chapter 4, verse 25, with the word, therefore. Okay, therefore. So it's pointing back to what Paul has already said. We'll read the passage here in just a second. But what I want you to notice, first of all, is that because you had your old self removed, that's what we saw last week, and because you have received a new self, therefore, this is how you ought to live. And so everything that follows through the rest of the book, really, is Paul saying, because of what has happened to you, Therefore, this is how you ought to live. Let me show you what it looks like to be on God's team, to be a part of God's family. Here's a helpful parallel from Colossians 3 where Paul talks about the same idea. He says, Do not lie to one another. Why? Since you had laid aside the old self with its evil practices and you have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Why should we not lie anymore? Paul tells us because... We have laid those evil practices aside. Now we're a new person. So think of that as we get into this passage. This is the idea that because of who we are, no longer our old self, but now a new self, this is how we ought to live. Okay? Chapter 4, verse 25. And I'll read to the end of the chapter. Chapter 4, verse 25. This is the Word of God. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. 
Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Here is Paul's point in this passage. Because you have laid aside your old self if you are a Christian, then you ought to spend your new self on the body of Christ. All of these commands here relate to our relationship within the body of Christ. I'll show you how that comes together at the very end. But, but I want you to understand that Paul is saying to us that we ought to spend our new self on the body of Christ. The first way that we do that, he gives us five ways to spend our new self on the body of Christ. The first way is found in verse 25. Spend your new self on the body of Christ by speaking the truth. Spend your new self on the body of Christ by speaking the truth. Now, in each of these commands that he gives, here's how you lay aside those old practices that you used to do. Here's how you do it. He's going to give a command. First, he's going to show you what it looks like in your old way of life and lay that aside. Second, he's going to show you what it looks like in your new way of life, now that you're a Christian, and then third, he's going to give a motivation why we ought to do this. Okay, so look for that as we go. Our old way of life, our new way of life, and then a motivation why we should live this way. So in this one, spend your life on the body of Christ by speaking the truth, verse 25. First, he shows us what the old way of life used to look like, and it's there in the first few words. Therefore, laying aside falsehood. Before we came to Christ, we used to use untruths and half-truths and non-truths to get an advantage, to improve our image, to look like someone that we are not. And here's Paul's point. That's not who you are anymore. Look at verse 20. Go back up to verse 20. Here's what he would say about that. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him just as truth is in Jesus. You see... When we came to Christ, we learned what it meant to live for Christ, and falsehood was not a part of it. Because just as, verse 21, the truth is in Jesus, so the truth ought to be in us. So we ought to lay aside that former way of life, of speaking lies. Notice next the, the, the new way of life at the end of verse 25. Laying aside falsehood, that's the old way. Now here's the new way. Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. Speak truth, each one with his neighbor. So who are our neighbors? When, the, when uh, someone asked that to Jesus, who is my neighbor, Jesus gave the story of the Good Samaritan. But here, neighbor is probably referring to those within our church. That is, church members. People with whom we've covenanted together. And he's saying, 
that you ought to be speaking the truth to other people within your church. Now, that doesn't give us a license to lie to people outside of the church. I hope you understand that. But his point is, this is how you serve the body. One of the ways you serve the body is not by speaking falsehood, but by speaking the truth. Now, why would we do that? Here's the motivation. Okay, Remember, old way of life, new way of life, motivation. Here it is at the end of verse 25. For we are members of one another. That's why I take neighbors to refer to a church. Because we are members of one another. And this is also our motivation. Why we ought not to be lying to one another. It would be foolish of me if I cut if I got a cut on my leg and because I didn't want my brain to know about it, I didn't allow my eyes to look at it. Maybe my brain will be tricked into thinking that I'm okay. Maybe my brain will be tricking, tricked into thinking that it's nothing to worry about and so I'll just let it go. I mean, that would be foolish of me because all of my body exists for one purpose. And it would be foolish for me to take one part of my body and, and lie to another part of my body. Okay? Or to, to try to convince my brain that I didn't really go to the places that my feet actually went. Okay? It's foolish for, my mem- for the members of my body to lie to one another. And here's Paul's point here. This is the same thing that is true within the body of Christ. We have been united together in one body through the Spirit. And for us to lie to one another when we're all going in the same direction is foolishness. Look at verse 3. I'll show you how we've been joined together. Remember that unity that we looked at a few weeks ago? Verse 3, chapter 4, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So this is something that the Spirit does. He brings us together in unity. Then verse 4, there is one body, one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope, of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. In these verses we saw the unifying realities of the faith that we are joined together around these unifying ideas of the gospel. We have the same Lord, the same doctrine. We are all baptized into the same body. We have the same outward expression of obedience. So let me just speak very practically to to us this morning. When we lie to each other, we invite discord into our body that was a a body that was designed to be unified. And so Paul says, see, that is not how you are anymore. That was the way you used to be. Now speak the truth one to another. Speak to your neighbor. Speak to each member one to another. It would be foolish to do otherwise. Number two. Okay, so first, spend your new self on the body by speaking the truth. Number two. Okay, remember there are five of these. Number two, verses 26 and 27. Spend your new self on the body of Christ by controlling your temper. Spend your new self on the body of Christ by controlling your temper. First, Paul again gives us the old way of life. What we need to lay aside. Verses 26 or verse 26. Be angry, he says, and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now notice what Paul does not say. He doesn't say, don't become angry. No, he says, but I mean, I think that's a necessary implication that we shouldn't become sinfully angry. But his point actually is, notice, it's a command in a positive way. Be angry. Get angry. 
But notice there's a qualification there. When you get angry, don't sin. So go ahead and become angry. Just don't sin when you do it. Get angry over sinful expressions of people that are opposed to God. You remember Jesus when He cleansed the temple. Why was He angry there? Why did He flip over all the tables of the money changers? Because He said this place is not a place for commerce. This is a house of prayer. And so it's not wrong for us to get angry. It's wrong for us to become sinfully angry. Do you understand the difference? We used to be that way, didn't we? We used to get angry over things in sinful ways and express it in sinful ways. Why, why is it that we used to do that? Why, why do we still sometimes do that, get angry in that way? Have you ever thought about the fact that anger is a community problem? It is a communal problem? It is a social problem? Think with me for a second. If you had the house to yourself for the whole day, you didn't come across one person, you kept you know, the TV off and everything, you just were alone, you didn't talk or interact with one person, I would guess that you didn't yell at yourself for spilling the milk or leaving your socks on the floor or making a mess of some kind. See, but when people come around, it's different, isn't it? Because they act differently than we want them to act. And so we get angry at them. See, a person gets sinfully angry is a person who doesn't have a good grasp on God's sovereignty over all things. Okay, A person who gets sinfully angry doesn't have a good understanding of God's sovereign rule. That is His controlling ability over everything. And so we think we have to control them. And one of the ways that, that it, we explode is through our, our unrighteous anger. And what Paul is saying is that is not who you are anymore. Now you understand. You did not learn Christ in this way. You understand now why God allows these sorts of things into your life. And you can see in a bigger picture that you can't control it all. And there's a responsibility for each of us to trust in God in these cases where people act differently than we want them to. And the only thing that we ultimately control is not people outside of us, is it? It's ourselves. It's our own hearts. And here's what Paul's saying. That's how you used to be. Sinfully angry. But now, here's what I want you to be. The new way of life is having a, a controlled temper. That is, uh, maybe temper is not the best way to, to put it, but, ha- but using our anger in a righteous way. It's not that we are no longer angry it's not, long, it's not that we can never have that emotion of anger, but it, really this is, as a Christian, it ought to be a filtered anger that is, is controlled by our understanding of what the world is and how God operates the world, how He controls the world. It's through that filter that we look at everything. You know, Christians... Sometimes our anger is ignited over something sinful and we should be angry over sin. But the problem for us often is we allow that to begin to fester. When we start to take uh, an air of pride, arrogance, 
like that would never happen to me or how dare they do that sort of thing. And that begins to fester and this grudge is being held on to for a long time by us. And what started out as righteous anger, we didn't like the sin because God didn't like it, now has turned into an all-consuming bitterness. It's so vile that we can't even stand to be around that person. Christians, you did not learn Christ in this way. You did not learn Christ in this way. That is not how Christians ought to act. This is why it's so important for us to do what verse 26 tells us. Look at the second part of verse 26. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, don't take this literally, you know. Wow, I'm, I'm really messed up because I often get angry after the sun sets. Or I get angry before the sun sets and then it sets and it's harder for me because it's in the winter I have less time to handle that anger, right? Because the days are shorter, the sun's setting earlier, and just imagine if I had to live in Alaska during their winters, right? It would be really hard for me to let, not let the sun go down on my anger. No, the point here is that we ought to be constantly evaluating our own hearts with the, the scope of Scripture, the, the mirror of Scripture. What, what does God want me to think about the, these circumstances, about the way that people are treating me? And then properly responding. Not proud resentful, holding a grudge, bitterness, a controlling sort of mindset. Because when we start to look at other people's sin, we have to be very, very careful. We can start to take pleasure in a self-righteous way at looking at other people's dirty laundry and saying, my stack of laundry is not nearly that dirty. We have to guard our hearts, don't we? Because the sin of others seems to be more prevalent than the sin that is living within us. See, as Christians, we no longer become unrighteously angry. That's not who we are anymore. Notice the motivation, verse 27. Why should we do this? Why should we control ourselves? Well, Paul tells us in verse 27, and do not give the devil an opportunity. In other words, so that you don't give the devil an opportunity. Here's one of the ways you can give the devil an opportunity. Become sinfully angry. Now, we often think of the devil as on the prowl, attacking us, and we should. He is active, and he is actively opposing us as Christians. But we, like, we tend to blame the devil for all of our sin. As if we're in a house full of lots of doors, and Satan is just knocking them over one by one, and we just can't keep them out. And Satan may do that at times, but I think our problem is more in line with what this verse says. We tend to leave the door cracked for Satan to just walk right in. He doesn't have to come with any force. You know how he comes in? Just walks right in to our, the home of our hearts. So we become sinfully angry. This is the way that we give the, the devil an opportunity, or as other translations say, a foothold. He gets a hold of us, and he doesn't want to let go. And here's how we can avoid giving the devil an opportunity to advance in our life. Stop becoming sinfully angry. Control yourself, Christian. So number one, 
speak the truth. Number two, control your anger. Number three, spend your new life on the body by working hard. Verse 28. Spend your new life on the body, on the body of Christ, that is, by working hard. Your old way of life was one of theft. Look at verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer. The implication there is that we used to be that way. That was how we used to be. We used to steal. This is another example of the product of our salvation. When we come to Christ, it changes us from thieves to hard workers. People who work hard for a living. Now, stealing, you say, well, I never stole in my life. But stealing comes in a lot of different forms, doesn't it? We can physically take something that doesn't belong to us. This starts out when we're toddlers, doesn't it? But stealing can also come when we cheat on our taxes, when we take advantage of someone else through fraud. We can waste more time at work than our boss allows. Okay, That's a form of stealing. Now, now why do we do that? Why, why did we used to do that before we came to Christ? Why do we still fail sometimes and actually steal? Isn't it because stealing makes our life a little bit easier I mean, we don't have to work as hard, right? We can rest a little bit. We can get the very things that we think we deserve without putting forth a lot of effort. But Christian, you did not learn Christ in this way. If you've been bought by Him, you learned to put that aside. And so put it aside. Put that kind of behavior behavior off. And instead, that was the old way of life. The new way of life is, look at verse 28, he who steals must do what? Steal no longer. So stop stealing. And then what else do we do? But rather, he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. So instead of trying to get by without doing a whole lot of work, now, as Christians, we understand the value of hard work. The word labor here means working to the point of exhaustion. This word is used of Jesus when he went to the to the well there in Samaria. Do you remember? And he had been wearied from a long day of journey. He had been wearied to the point of exhaustion. The same word is used in John chapter 4 as is used here in Ephesians chapter 4. And so here's what Paul's saying. He who steals must steal no longer, but instead he must work to the point of of exhaustion. Laboring with your hands to do what is good. Instead of laziness and greed, we work hard. And if you feel that's too much, take comfort from how we can actually do this. You may feel, I don't have anything left in the tank. How could I give myself to laboring to the point of exhaustion? Listen to Paul and how what he attributes his same word, toilsome labor, to Colossians 1.29. For this person purpose also, I labor, I work to the point of exhaustion, striving according to His power which mightily works within me. Christian, do you know how you can work hard to the point of exhaustion? You may feel you're at the end of your rope physically. And you can't work any harder than you are. The way that you do that is through the power of God working within you. That's what Paul said. The only way I can labor to the point of exhaustion is that way. Now, why should we work hard? The motivation. The motivation 
is found here at the end of verse 28. So that he, that is the one who works hard, will have something to share with one who has need. Theologian Daniel Aiken gives three reasons why we ought to work to the point of exhaustion with our labor. He gives three reasons. Number one, toilsome labor honors Christ. Number two, toilsome labor serves as a testimony to others. They see that we are working hard. We're not following these get-rich-quick schemes, but rather we're working hard recognizing that God uses us through hard work rather than through theft or some or other form of, of, of shifting our responsibility. And then three, this is the third reason. It's found right here. Toilsome labor gives us income that we can use to share with others. Have you ever thought, you know, I'd really like to give more money to the church. If I had more money, I think I would. I'd really like to give more money to this struggling family that I know or some of my own family. I'd really like to do that. You ever thought that? How did you imagine that you would come upon that money in order to be able to do that? Was it through winning the lottery or maybe receiving some sort of inheritance? Or like in Monopoly, you know, bank error in your favor? Is that how you saw that you would come upon that money so you could give to others? I'll happy, happily give to you, God, but you just have to dump some money at my doorstep. That's not generally how God works. God works not through those get-rich-quick schemes like stealing, but rather through hard work. When you imagine, I would love to have more money to give to other people, you ought to be thinking, the way that I'm going to make that happen, the way I'm going to allow God to work through me is through hard, toilsome labor to the point of exhaustion. This is how God accomplishes His purposes, through hard work. So here's a very worthwhile goal for you. If you are not in a position to give as much as you would love to give, what can you do to work harder than you currently are to the point of exhausting yourself? We ought to have this desire. But if we're only having this desire, as long as you give me a big sum of money, God, then we're thinking about it in the wrong way. And if you're not in that position where you can give like you'd like to, then you need to pray to God to help you to work harder so that you could be in that position. I think that would be something that honors Christ. Number four. First, we serve the body by speaking the truth. Second, we serve the body by controlling our anger. Third, we serve the body by working hard. Fourth, We spend our new self on the body or we serve the body by building others up. Verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do you see the old way of life that's described there? What is it? What's the old way of life? Speaking unwholesome words. That word unwholesome is the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 7 to refer to bad fruit. Remember where he said bad fruit comes from? Good trees or bad trees? Bad trees. So he's not talking about something, you know, kind of unhelpful for you to say that. He's saying 
when unwholesome words, Paul's saying, when unwholesome words come from our mouth, it may be an indication that it comes from a bad tree. Christian, you did not learn Christ in this way. That's your old way of life. You used to talk about people in unwholesome ways, unhelpful, corrupt, bad ways. But you didn't learn Christ in this way. You have laid that aside. You ought to be laying that aside. I'm sure if you had parents like mine, they used to say, if you don't have something nice to say, go get the paddle and I'll help you find something nice. No. He said, don't say anything at all. Right? And that's, there's some wisdom in that. As Christians, we ought not to be saying anything that is not edifying. We ought not to be saying unwholesome words to people. Instead, we ought to be grace dispensers. Grace dispensers. Do you remember the little Pez dispensers? You just pull up the little character's head and the little candy comes out. This is you, Christian. You are a grace dispenser. When you speak wholesome words to people, have you ever had somebody speak wholesome words to you at the perfect time? Maybe when you were struggling or when you were, when you were excited about something in your life and someone came along and said the perfect words, the helpful words that actually encourage your soul and help you to think properly. I remember a friend of mine telling me about his pastor who had a man in their church who was caught in adultery. And the pastor had to go before the church and tell everyone about this member who had committed adultery and was in a position of leadership at that church. And as you can imagine, the congregation was very sobered by the news. And the pastor's next words were perfectly displayed, perfectly given. He said this, I don't like to think of this situation as if God used our church to catch him in the act. I don't like to think of it as if he was caught, but rather that he was rescued. This is God's way of saying that is not what Christians do. And so here this pastor is using helpful, edifying, building up type of words to help his congregation to see to see that, that they need to grow and to learn from this situation, to see God's perspective of the situation. Proverbs 25.11 says, A word aptly spoken or spoken at the right time in the right way is like apples of gold and settings of silver. In effect, we ought to be seeking out opportunities to use our words in an edifying, a building up type of way so that we are human grace dispensers. Just think of it, Christian. Your mouth can be used to dispense grace to other people. To help God work through you to change other people. So that's the motivation. Our old way of life was, we used to speak unwholesome words. Our new way of life is now we speak edifying words, ones that equip other people to do the work of the ministry, ones that help encourage other people. That's the new way of life. And the motivation is so that we will be grace dispensers. Number five. Spend your new self on the body through acts of kindness. Verses 31 and 32. We'll come back to verse 30 here in a second. But verses 31 and 32. Spend your new self on the body of Christ through acts of kindness. Your old way of life was, verse 31, you had uncontrolled 
sinful activities and emotions. That was your old way of life. That's what verse 31 is talking about. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away along with all malice. That's the way you used to be. But as a Christian, you're not that way anymore. You ought not to be that way anymore. So any type of sinful mindset or disposition that you used to engage in ought to be put away from you. Bitterness is all kinds of resentment. This is what I was talking about earlier when we allow a grudge to to form and to fester. Wrath is that uh, outburst of reckless anger where we just lash out at people. Anger is is this next one listed in verse 31 is this uh, steady seething uh, anger that builds up over time and eventually explodes in wrath. Clamor is this outcry. It's this unrestrained shouting. It's also translated as brawling. Do you have neighbors or family members who are like this? Don't name them, but you know they, they, they just shout at each other when they're mad. Yeah, this is what clamor is, slander. The next one here in verse 31 is talking about other people in a way that turns them into a villain. We can easily do this as if they're the worst person on earth. We defame their name and their reputation maybe in front of them or behind their back. And then finally, all kinds of malice. Christian, you did not learn Christ in this way. Christ saved you and He's now put you on a different team. You don't act this way anymore. You ought not to act this way anymore. Instead, we ought to put on this new way of life which is found in 30, verse 32. Before we get there though, I, I hope you recognize how prevalent this all kinds of evil is. That it is it shows up on the TV and on the newspaper and on your Facebook feed and, and you'll find hundreds of examples of these types of sins that we've been talking about that are all over. And those things are not things that ought to be describing us as Christians. We ought not to be slandering or harboring bitterness or sinful rage. We not, ought not to be having outbursts of sinful wrath. Believer, you did not learn Christ in this way. Instead, verse 32, you learned to show acts of kindness. And this is what you ought to be being changed into. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Show acts of kindness. Speaking for yourself, can you can can the, can your demeanor, can your reputation be described within this body as a kind one by other people? When your name comes up in conversation and you're not there, is the first word that they think about kindness. She is so kind. That ought to be how each of us are striving to live. To actually be described by all these positive things that we've been looking at. But one of them is one of them is kindness. But why would we do such a thing? I mean, that person hurt me. That person is so cold to me. Every time I try to talk to them, they don't respond the way I think a, a normal person would respond. And so why should I be kind to other people within our church? They're often unkind to me. And the answer is at the end of verse 32. And here's the motivation. Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Why can, why should we be kind to other people who are unkind to us, who have hurt us, 
who are cold to us, it's because that's exactly how we were to Christ. And yet He still loved us, didn't He? He still was kind to us and was forgiving to us. Christ forgave you. And believer, this ought to serve as a motivation for you to forgive others, to be kind to them. Here's the great part about your kindness expressed to others. God uses your acts of kindness to show His kindness to them. Let me try to help you understand this. God wants to show kindness to other believers. One of the avenues, one of the ways He shows His kindness to that believer is through you. You are, in a sense, a mediator of God. Where you show acts of kindness on His behalf and they receive comfort from you. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 1 sometime. Comfort others with the comfort you yourself have received from God. The point there is the way that we can comfort other people is as God has comforted us through other believers. Same thing is true with kindness, with all these things. We are grace dispensers. We are the the go-between in the sense between God and that person. God's given you a great task. And if you're not kind to other people, especially those of our church, what kind of picture do we impress upon other people about who God is? I mean, if we're always harsh and critical and unloving, what do you think people think about our God that we serve? One final motivation found in verse 30. And I think this covers all of them. And this serves kind of as a summary. Verse 30 reads, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Those who spend their lives on the body of Christ are pleasing to God. If all these motivations weren't enough that we've already seen, the unity of the body, not harming that unity, protecting ourselves against Satan's attack, a desire to share our gifts with others, a desire to be a grace dispenser, and and obviously the motivation of Christ's gift for us. If those motivations aren't enough, Paul gives us one more. And that is that the Holy Spirit lives within us and He owns us. The Holy Spirit lives within us and He owns us. And so we have a specific responsibility to please Him. Now, note, I want you to notice this. We don't grieve the Holy Spirit by making a direct attack on His person. Look again. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Well, Paul, how do we grieve the Spirit of God? I've never said anything blasphemous against the Holy Spirit. I've never called out His name and said that you are not God or something like that. It's not through a direct attack. But rather, the way that we grieve the Holy Spirit of God is by living according to our old way of life and tearing down the body of Christ. Through speaking falsehood, through stealing, through speaking unwholesome words. You see, all these things are are actually directed at the body. And what the Spirit, what Paul is saying through the Spirit is that the way that we grieve the Holy Spirit is by tearing down the body of Christ. And there's two reasons why we ought not to want to do this. First, He lives in us and among us. 
Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Obviously, if we're tearing down the body, that means He lives within us. He identifies Himself with our body, and so He lives in us and among us. Second, because He owns us and He owns us. He owns us and He owns all of us as a body. That's what the last part is. That whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So, do you are you concerned at all about grieving the Holy Spirit of God? I mean, it seems as if the desire in our lives is to let the sin abound and forget about the Holy Spirit and His grief. I remember as a kid how much I was tempted to sin against God. And one of the deterrents to me doing so was to grieve my believing parents. I couldn't bear to face my parents' grief and their righteous anger against my sin. And in a greater way, we ought to find it unbearable to sin in such a way that the Holy Spirit is, is grieved. Do you remember that feeling when your parents are grieved over something? This is what we're due to the Holy Spirit when we, when we live according to our old way of life. We don't put those things off and we don't live according to our new way of life. He's grieved over our sin. person has been genuinely changed, it will affect the way that he lives. A liar is going to speak the truth. Verse 25. A person with a violent temper will learn to practice self-control. A thief is going to use his hands and mind for positive hard work. A filthy talker is going to use his mouth to edify. And a person who is involved in all sorts of evil is going to be kind. Instead of doing harm to one another, we are actually working to build up the body of Christ. Perhaps you're sitting here today and thinking about all these old ways of life and thinking, you know, I'm glad I don't do any of those sins. First, I would suggest that you probably do, but in a more subtle way than is listed here. If you feel that you're not disobeying this passage in any way or that you're obeying it perfectly, then... I would encourage you to talk to God about that and ask God to search your heart. Do you think God knows what's going on in your heart for real? Ask God to search your heart. And then I would encourage you to ask a person who knows you best to evaluate you. Who, who is it that knows you the best? Ask them about these specific things. Do I fail in any of these ways? Is there something that I'm missing? See, because as Christians, we can be self-deceived about our own sin. We think we're okay. Self-righteousness. That's what that's all about. And so we go to God. Ask God, search my heart. Go to someone else. Search me. What, what is it that I need to work on in this passage? So don't be self-righteous when you look at a passage like this and say, I'm not doing any of those things. And secondly, if you don't think you're doing any of those old ways of life, it's not enough. There are commands here not just to avoid those old ways of sin, but to do these things positively that replace them. And so I'd encourage you to list out all of the positive responsibilities, all those new ways of life that we talked about. List those all out, and under each one, list the specific time within the last week or month in which you participated in doing those good things. You see, the real test is not... Am I avoiding all of those things with my mouth and with my hands or, or whatever? But, but am, am I using myself, am I using my gifts, my resources for the sake of the body? Am I positively doing any good for the sake of Christ's church? What would our church look like 
if every single word that was spoken to one another was a word of edification, a word of building people up according to the need of the moment, that it was always to build up and not to tear down, both in front of them and behind their backs. Are we there yet? To those of you who did see that your old, that old way of life is very prevalent within you and that you fail in those areas very much, then, then I would encourage you just to repent, to turn from that. God wants you to turn and be restored. You might feel overwhelmed right now because of all the responsibility you have. Maybe you saw yourself exposed today in this passage that you felt like God was speaking to you through His Word. Praise God for that. But, but don't be overwhelmed by the responsibility that you have. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to Me, all you that labor, and find a rest. You may not see the Christian life as a life of rest right now. In a sense, you're right. We are in a battle, aren't we? And the real rest comes in the next life. And so in a sense, you're right. But when you come to Christ, you know how hard it is. You know that problems don't go away when you come to Christ, right? And sometimes they increase. Ask the Apostle Paul, how was the level of his problems before he came to Christ versus after? Ask a former Muslim who has come to Christ or a person who is saved from a family of devout Catholics what it's like to live for Christ. They are often ostracized. And so when it comes to Christ, this verse doesn't seem to make sense. Come to me, you labor, and I'll give you rest. It doesn't feel like rest. When I came to Christ, it felt worse. It felt like a heavier load. And there is a sense in which that is true. And it's going to get harder before we have final rest. But you need to recognize three things. Number one, that ultimate rest does come in the next life. Number two, that our greatest problem of opposition has been taken care of through the finished work of Christ on the cross. And then three, we need to recognize that we do find rest for our souls in this lifetime in light of the conflict that we were fighting against God. Here was your greatest enemy in all of life. It was God. You hated Him. And I hated Him before we came to Christ. But when Christ saved you, He reconciled that relationship and no longer you're in opposition to the God of the universe. You may have other opposition that comes up as a result of following Christ to the cross, but your greatest opposition has been removed. Because you have laid aside your old self. Stop spending yourself, your new self, on yourself. And start spending yourself on the body of Christ. When you do, you will make it harder on Satan to make an advance on you. And you will please the Holy Spirit of God who lives in you, who lives in us, who owns this body. Work for the good of Christ's church. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we recognize after having listened to You speak to us today through Your Word that we often grieve You by working against what is best for the body of Christ. Holy Spirit, we do it so often callously. Help us to appreciate Your reality among us and within us. We don't want to bring you grief. We don't want to tear down this expression of the body of Christ in Royal Oak. We live sometimes so mindlessly 
we are carried away by our own lusts. We fail to recognize how real You are and how present You are among us. O Holy Spirit, help us to see the folly of our sin and to live for Your smile. Father, we want to be a pleasant aroma before You because of our faith-filled obedience. Help us to turn from our sins and to find forgiveness in the blood of Jesus. And help us to live for Your glory as we work for the good of this body that You've entrusted to our care. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you turn your hymn book to 247, we'll sing the first verse, the old rugged cross, 247. When you found that in your hymn book, would you stand with me as we sing?